Thank you, Nancy. Beautiful word to us this morning. Well, we're continuing in a, a series in which we are looking at the parables of Jesus. And uh, as I was talking to Priscilla earlier this week, uh, um, our uh, social media guru here in the church, uh, she's from Brazil, many of you know, and, and I was just wondering if she was going to vote because she's, you know, she's a Brazilian. Well, she told me she actually has dual citizenship. She's both a Brazilian and uh, a United States citizen. So she said, of course, of course she was going to vote. Uh, and then I realized, in, in, in fact, all of us as believers have dual citizenship. We're all citizens, many of us, of the United States, most of us, I would suppose. Some of us are even of voting age. Uh, but, but all of us, as citizens of the United States, function here as citizens in this country, as citizens of still a kingdom to which we owe even higher loyalty, uh, the kingdom of God. Um, our, our country is uh, uh, to be honored, to be served, um, but we as Christians see our uh, availability and our obligation first to the kingdom of God and then to the kingdoms of this world. And, and so as we approach this Tuesday, as critical and as pivotal as this election is in our uh, national history and happenings, uh, I felt it, it would almost be negligent of me as a shepherd of American Christians to just look right past it. Um, I think it's just too important. Not because I'm merely an American citizen, but because I, with you, am a citizen of the kingdom of God. But it's interesting to me that in 2012, according to one of the earlier candidates in, in the, the race, I heard Cruz say early in the election that, Ted Cruz, that almost 50% of Christians are not voting. And he was referring to the 2012 track record of, of Christians. Almost 50%, he said, are not voting. And I, I was reading, you know, I was, is that really true? Uh, I was reading up on that on the internet, checking the facts of all that kind of stuff. And, and, and many have looked into that, and it's not far from the truth. It's close to 50%. In fact, maybe the most uh, positive suggestions have been maybe 60% of Christians uh, are actually voting, but that still leaves somewhere between 40 and 50% of us out of the picture. And, and, and the truth of the fact is, if, if that's the case, then probably no largely greater percentage of Christians are voting than just your average citizen. It, it, it's about the same level uh, of involvement. And, and this morning I was... Uh, I uh, want to focus on a parable in Luke 19. You might want to turn there with me. Luke 19, 11 through 27. Uh, Jesus tells this parable. And it's a parable, I think, that is a warning. Listen to me. A warning to bystanders. Of, of those who are hesitant to get involved. And I think this parable pushes us to recognize that faith in God rarely means just standing by. 
We have responsibilities. And in fact, in this particular parable, in verse 11 that starts it, it sets this as the context. And while they were listening to these things, he went, to tell a par- he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, that being Jesus, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so then Jesus tells them this parable of their ongoing responsibilities as agents of his kingdom in this world. Interesting the context of that. I think there are many Christians perhaps that are deciding that, you know, the only thing that's going to save this country is God, so I'm just out. Well, that's about where these people were. They were so certain that the kingdom of God was going to come that all their other responsibilities to God had just been kind of shelved and and they were just waiting for the big breakthrough. It all depends on God anyway. And so they, they had decided to become bystanders, not to exercise their responsibilities as agents of of God's kingdom. Now, this is a very different story. Well, not very different. It's very similar, but it's been tweaked from the story of the talents in Matthew. In fact, the story of the talents is usually a little bit more interesting, so rarely do we hear this version that Luke tells us. Uh, A retelling of this as Jesus approached Jerusalem. He found another context for it. And, And strangely enough, the way he tells it here is very politically charged. It begins, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. Not his servants, but his citizens. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves of his, his servants to whom he had given the money, be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. What responsibility, what management had they exercised with this gift that he had given them? And a mina is not nearly as much as a talent. It's, a, it's almost like a 60th of a talent. It, it, it's something that could be dismissed, though it's enough maybe to, to start a venture and get involved in a business. It's, it's not the huge amount that the talent was. So, so maybe a mina was a little bit easier to set aside. Maybe it's not so important. It's just one mina. It's just one vote. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. It was actually a a political reality at the time. Early in Jesus' life, there had been an actual occasion, much like this, where uh, Herod the Great had passed on at about 4 AD. And when Herod the Great passed on, he passed uh, the rule of the land to three, not just one, but to three. There was... uh, uh, Ashulus and um, what were those other guys' names? Ashulus and Philip and uh, uh, well, there were three of them. You, you can look it up later. There were three guys, and, and, and 
though Herod had passed along his rule to them, in theory, that still had to be ratified by Rome that was the sitting power at the time. So these three guys go to Rome in order to get the authority that their father had left to them. And what actually happens is, as they go to Rome, a delegation from Palestine is rounded up and 50 guys go behind them to have an audience with Augustus to say, we don't want them as our king. And Augustus, being the shrewd politician that he was, said, okay, you're in power, but we won't call you king. Isn't that? I don't know if that makes him a Republican or a Democrat. I don't, I don't, I don't know which that would be, but, but, but shrewd political maneuvering there. And, and, and so they come back, and when they come back, how do you think those 50 in that delegation set with those that are now in power? It wasn't pretty, I would imagine. I, I don't know historically how that worked out, but, but I can sense the tension that, that must have been there. And so, strangely, Jesus tells this story with a, uh, with a different twist this time. N- now it's not only the responsibility of those that are his servants that are in view, but there's this rebellion going on around them. And in the midst of this rebellion, they are still charged to be responsible with the callings and the responsibilities that this king has left with them. God will deal with those that are in rebellion in their time, but those who are his servants have no less responsibility. Here's a a warning to bystanders. Bystanders, those those who are not uh, active with that responsibility. And the first appeared saying, Master, you have a mine, your mina has made you ten more. So he had taken one mina and comes back with ten minas. And, and, he, and he said to them, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. Ten minas, ten cities. The reward for faithfulness is still more responsibility. Interesting turn there. And the second came saying, your mina master has made five more minas. What do you think his reward was? And and you were to be over five cities. Yes. And another came saying, master, behold your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. I I hid it away. We did not use it. We made sure... That it, was, that it was not in circulation, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You know, you're tough. You're tough. I knew you were going to turn and return and, 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 and you'd have much to inspect. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap where you do not sow. And that's not, that's not very nice. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you. Then says the king, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man and taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. At least. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does, does have, shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them Bring them here and slay them in my presence. An amazing story. Taken, it would seem, almost from the headlines of the day and retold in such a way that it tells us about our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God. First of all, there's a king's trust. 
This king has endowed each one of his servants with a mina, uh, an endowment. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all of us are endowed with certain inalienable rights. All of us in this kingdom of this earth have been given a vote and a voice. We've been given a gift. There's not only a king's trust, there's a king's test. When he gives them the mina, that's not the end of the story. There's accountability involved here and and risk and return and faithful management or, or, or negligence. There, there are consequences and there's, there's one returning who has the authority to hold us accountable. In verse 15 it says, I've come and to ask what business you have done. This balloting business is serious business. It's one of those things, at least in this country, in which God has entrusted us with a voice as citizens of his kingdom among the workings of this United States. These, these servants were in kind of strange circumstances, despite the fact that they'd been giving these responsibilities. They were dwelling amongst a people that were in rebellion to their king. Doesn't matter, your call and your responsibility still stands. These servants are, are either rewarded or they suffer loss based on how they manage things. Well done. And to the one who was well done that had uh, done good business with his mina, greater influence is given. Ten minus ten cities. Five minus five cities. Or no more minas. No more influence. Even what they have is taken away. I wonder if this isn't a warning for us. If it doesn't fit in our present context, that we, we have been entrusted with a vote. And that God somehow holds us accountable for those things, those influences with which he has endowed us. That God has endowed us with certain inalienable. I, I think it matters how we use it. And the truth of the matter is that, that nations sometimes fall into uh, patterns of decline. Uh, a sociologist that studies uh, the trajectory of kingdoms and of nations has said this, that there's a typical pattern that usually repeats. See if you don't hear this in our own history as Americans. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty and freedom, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back to bondage. Many analyzers of our social times have tried to discern where we are if that progression is accurate for us. Now, not all nations inevitably walk down that path, but there seems to be this tendency from which there are moments of exception or moments of delay in this kind, moments of revival, but, but the general sequence seems to hold true. Most today would say we're at least 
in the complacency to apathy stage. Close to apathy to dependence. Dependency back to bondage again. Did you hear in the end how even what we've been endowed with is being taken away? A voice in the process, complacency, goes to apathy. Apathy goes to dependency, in which case the vote and the voice becomes basically a rubber stamp for those who are in charge. Dependency back to bondage, where vote is no longer a rubber stamp. It's actually stamped out as an inconvenience to those who are in power. It's the nature of human governance and the role of God in that governance in such a way that when... Governments tend to start walking down a socialistic path of greater control, many of whom see the end of that trajectory in in, uh, totalitarianism is at the end of that spectrum. That God along that, that trajectory gets to be more and more of an inconvenience. As governments claim more and more power for themselves from the people, God becomes a very inconvenient kind of reality. If you're a government that wants to be in complete control, it's an inconvenience for the people that you're trying to rule to claim a higher authority in God. It's no uh, coincidence that in most socialistic countries that we've become aware of in our last 200 and 300 years of existence, that in most of those socialistic countries, God was erased. Look at the Soviet Union. I, you know, I'm no master of history, but, but, but just look at the tendency here. It concerns me that, that, that in our country, we've already started erasing God. Erasing Him from our public square. And now, powers that be are even holding pastors subpoenaed for the word that they are saying, supposedly from a free pulpit. There was a time in our governance where we understood that we existed as one nation under God. That was not a statement of proselytizing faith. That was a statement of orderly workings of government. One nation under God means that we recognize, even those who are governing and in power, that they are accountable to someone above themselves. Erase that. Who are they accountable to? You have to eliminate God in order for someone to take complete power. And, and I'd have to close my eyes not to see the signs of that. We're, we're in a very critical place as a nation. And we have an ongoing responsibility as God's servants. To be faithful to him. What, what kind of governance will we vote into place that we might pursue the agendas of the kingdom of God? Or will our vote come to restrict that freedom to act as God's agents? These servants are either rewarded 
or they lose their influence. I think God holds us accountable that, that, that we use our vote in such a way that, that we honor him and what, what we choose and, and who we choose and the platforms that we support. I think it's important that we use our gift. I think it's also important how we use our gift, our voice, our vote. I've heard, and I trust this is true, that as difficult as it is now in this election to find a personality that your heart can rest in, there are nevertheless pretty clear platforms I knew this as a general assumption of things. I had no idea that these, these platforms were not in a more comparable form. You know, I, I thought they were bullet points on a page somewhere that you could compare platform to platform. They're actually almost 50 to 60 page documents that you have to pick the points of the platform out of. And depending, I found out to great frustration this weekend, depending on who you ask what the points are, you get a different reporting of what they are. Ask, ask the mothers of veteran wars or whatever, they, and, and, and they, they, they will put something in that. You know? And, and, and if, you, if you ask the uh, Christian evangelical leader, then, then that sometimes is, is colored. Or, or, or if you ask someone that's the head of this party, how does their party platform compare to the other party's platform, you can almost be certain that when it comes down to how they describe it, they're not going to describe it with great clarity about what they actually mean. They will usually describe it in such terms that the broadest amount of people can feel comfortable with whatever they say. Stinking scary. But with whatever resources I've found... I want to make them available to you should you choose to take them. Uh, There are resources on the information desk as you leave today. If you want to compare those platforms and those positions, some come from from, uh, Christian resources. Uh, you need to be aware of that. They walk through those things that are primarily the spiritual concerns of, uh, uh, of most Christians, and they compare those two platforms, uh, the Democratic and the Republican platform in that regard. And what I've heard is regardless of what kind of personality, flawed or not, that we're in, and all of them are flawed, that we might, we might elect into positions, that over 80% of the time, those who are elected under that platform tend to vote consistently with that platform. So if you can't figure out what in the heck people are saying, maybe that's a clue. That's the way things will actually move. I'm not a political analyst this morning. I'm a pastor. And, and, And I'm fearful that just like they in that day were waiting for Jesus to come into Jerusalem and for the kingdom to come. They were neglecting their responsibilities as as his disciples and as his agents that perhaps too many Christians these days are not getting to the polls and simply letting their voice, influenced by God, be heard. We seem to be as apathetic as the nation around us. And I think that's a tragic thing. It matters that we use our vote. It matters how we use our vote. 
The rewards of such will either empower or disempower us as the people of God. We will able, be able to do kingdom work more freely or less freely. There are rewards. And there are consequences and costs to the neglect of our influence. Our influence can be diminished. Our vote can be taken away. If we don't exercise it while we still have that opportunity. But the agenda of the kingdom of God does not depend upon an election. I love the way this story ends. The king comes. And he is the one to whom we owe our devotion. And he is the one that will someday spell our victory and, and, and bring it to pass. His judgments are the ones that matter. Our king will come. And I think we're finding that what Paul described in Romans 1. And he was describing it really as the, the slide of an individual or of individuals away from God. Also mirrors this decline in nations as well as they come to turn away from God and turn to themselves. Individuals and societies can both turn from God and uh, progressively go down a destructive path. In Romans 1, that, that, that path is, is uh, delineated. Before I read it, let me just uh, give you some markers for, for where we're going to go in this. As people turn themselves from God, they first start by suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They ignore the evidence of their own conscience and they ignore the evidence in creation around them. And then this, they take another step from suppressing the truth to actually exchanging the truth for a lie. They exchange idols for God, lies for truth, pride for humility, the appetites that we have in common with animals for the sanctification to which the Holy Spirit calls us. But, but not only is there a suppressing of truth and an exchange of truth, there's also results of rejecting the truth. Our hearts are darkened, our minds are deceived, our passions are degraded. We dishonor God. We dishonor and start destroying each other in our depravity. And then finally, not only are we the workers of rebellion, but we actually finally become the champions of rebellion. Not only participating in it, but cheering others on as if they are choosing the right as well. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his inevitable attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. How far will we go down this path? 
how many of our religious liberties will be lost. In our negligence, how difficult will we make it for ourselves to continue in the business of the kingdom? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of a corruptible man, of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity and their bodies that they might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function for, of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death itself, they not only do the same, but they also give heartily approval to those who practice them. This Tuesday, if you're of age and eligible, you have the opportunity to vote. You are a citizen of the, king, of the kingdom of God as, as well as... Put your hands behind your back. For what? Inciting hate through speech. Inciting riot, future elections. Hate. How, how was I Hateful. We are blessed to live in a country where we have a voice, a vote as Christians. Would you join me in prayer that we would be faithful in that opportunity? Father, give us wisdom to vote this Tuesday in ways that empower your plans for our nation's future. Amen. Amen.